is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vunganyi in Washington. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, this week, we look at China's Africa relations as the country's foreign minister concluded his visit to five African nations pushing for deeper ties with the continent. Many development experts are expressing concerns about China's interests on the continent. So the rise of Chinese loans to Africa coincided with China's going out policy in the late 1990s, right? This is a policy that supports Chinese domestic companies in gaining overseas market shares. That is Jai Zhong Huang, a global China pre-doctoral research fellow at the Boston University Global Development Policy Center, where she leads research for Chinese loans to Africa database. But first, let's listen to your opinions. We asked you to chime in on the debate, are leaders born or are they made? Well, let me say that uh, I believe personally that uh, leadership is something that uh, one is born with. So, yes, I would say that uh, we can learn uh, to be a leader in class. But at the same time, I would say that uh, you don't necessarily need to sit uh, in a classroom and to learn how to become a leader. However, it is uh, somehow important for one to also uh, have an access to uh, lessons on leadership. We are not supposed to be taught on how uh, to be a good leader, but we are supposed to learn. Okay, if someone wants to be a good leader, he or she is supposed to learn maybe from other people, from other leaders, from their role models, so, so that um, he or she should be like that someone else. Yes, there's need for lessons on how to be leaders for. There are certain leadership skills that a person does not acquire like naturally, so therefore there's need for extra learning so that they have these skills. Leadership is a gift one is born with, so there's no need for one to be in class and have lessons on leadership. We have seen leaders who have failed their people just because they thought it is enough for them to lead because they learned about how to be a leader, yet they do not have the gift of leadership from God. There are a number of people who have been leaders in the society. These people are good leaders, comparing also to some other people who are very educated, but they are not good leaders. So being a leader, it doesn't matter whether you are educated or not. It just depends on how you are brought up, how you grown, or the environment you live. Thank you for your opinions. This is Upfront on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vunganyi. At the beginning of this year, 2023, China's Foreign Affairs Minister, Qin Gang, paid a visit to five African nations. In the last decade, China has pushed for a stronger engagement with the continent, providing over $140 billion in loans for infrastructure development, including the construction of roads and other infrastructure projects. However, Development experts have expressed concerns that some African countries may struggle to repay these loans, particularly if they are facing economic challenges due to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, increasing food and fuel prices partly attributed to the war in Ukraine, or if the conditions and terms of the loans are not favorable. Others have argued that China is using its economic influence in Africa as leverage to advance its own strategic interests. 
China, on the other hand, has dismissed these concerns, saying that its engagement with Africa is based on principles of mutual benefit and non-interference in the internal affairs of these African countries. So to get a better understanding on the relationship between China and Africa, let's consult people that deal in data and numbers. And no better person than Jai Jong Huang, a global China pre-doctoral research fellow at the Boston University's Global Development Policy Center, where she leads research for the Chinese loans to Africa database. I reached her in Boston. So let's let's start off with the numbers, right? So between 2000 and 2020, so Chinese loans to Africa database that we manage at Boston University estimates that Chinese financiers together signed 1,188 loan commitments, together worth 160 billion uh, of loans to 49 African governments, state or enterprises, and regional multilateral organizations. So think Africa. So think.、Um, The Africa Export Import Bank. So, 160 billion. This is a tremendous amount of financial injection, and is a very rapid growth from the early 2000s when, comparatively, there was just a trickle. And let's put this into perspective. So, during the same period, so from 2000 to 2021, the OECD DAC, that's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development's Development Assistance Desk, long name OECD DAC. This is made up of 30 mostly Western high-income economies, but also includes Japan and South Korea. So OECD DAC during the same period contributed about 730 billion worth of、um, official development assistance and、uh, other official flows to Africa. So. Comparatively, China alone, just in loans, right, contributed. This is about 22 percent of what OECD DAC does, and this doesn't include、uh, China's grants or China's、um, in-kind donation or things、mm. like. Or the foreign assistance, the foreign aid. Exactly. So,、mm. so this is just loans, and that's 22 percent of what OECD DAC is doing. So, it does look like,、um, considering the amount, it does look like Africa is of great importance to China's plans abroad. So, what is in it for China to continue pouring so much money into Africa? So, to understand this, we have to look into the years leading up to this surge, right? So, the rise of Chinese loans to Africa, Africa coincided with China's going out policy in the late 1990s, right? This is a policy that supports Chinese domestic companies in gaining overseas market shares. Okay, this is to support Chinese companies going out. No bigger market than Africa at the time, which was growing, still it's growing. A, it's, a, it's a market of great potential, right?、Yeah. So there are two factors that influence this going up policy,、uh, particularly with particularly with respect to construction sector, which accounts for the bulk of Chinese loans in Africa. The railways, the roads, exactly.、Mm. Right? So what are these two major factors? First, it is the anticipated overcapacity of construction contracts. In China. In China, okay. Okay.、Yeah. And the second is the anticipated competition from foreign construction companies once China joins WTO in 2001. Okay.、Mm. So let's break that down a little bit. The first part. So Chinese construction companies themselves, they were responsible for the rapid infrastructure development in China through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Right. By the time you hit the early the 1990s. All the major infrastructure projects in China are finished, right? They're complete. There's、They're, nothing well, more to build. There's a lot less 
to build than they were back in the days, right? So right. now these Chinese companies, they have a lot of experience operating on a shoestring budget, building things very quickly in China. And now the surplus of material that have been accumulating experience. over there. A surplus of uh, expertise, let's put it, and capacity, right? Mm -hmm. So now they're encouraged to go abroad and seek foreign contracts. Now let's look at the second factor. So once once China joins the WTO, they are going to face competition with foreign construction companies. So it is good for Chinese companies to also gain experience at home and overseas. That's why they're encouraged to go abroad, to, to look at, well, how do we compete with what can we do abroad as well and not just in China? Mm. So it's important to compete with American companies or American companies, German companies, so on and so forth, right? So these Chinese loans to Africa, which comes mostly from the two Chinese policy banks, uh, the China Export Import Bank and the China Development Bank, these are meant to help Chinese Chinese companies to gain an upper hand when competing for contracts abroad. So if you are an African state who happens to have a very tight budget, being able to access loan financing is a very important consideration when you are in the process of deciding who to avoid. Right. Cheap cheap loans too. Cheap loans. Comparatively cheap loans. So they're cheaper loans. If you can get it from the IMF, Mm. but they don't give it, then you have to find it elsewhere. It is cheaper than if you just go on to the international market and borrow from there. That's very expensive. So somewhere in between Chinese loans. Right. So less less conditions, of course. I mean, we're talking about cheap, not necessarily because it's actually cheap, but in terms of conditions, these banks will not ask for as much as where IMF is asking for all these other preconditions about human rights and all those things. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, so in comparison, yes, the Chinese is they have they have different lending practices, right? So if you think about why China lends, we talk about this is. China lends because it is in Chinese interest to lend, right? So they don't, they don't, the the China Export Import Bank and the China Development Bank aren't out to promote human rights or, 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 or democracy. Yeah. Or, yeah, there's a, no, we are here to make sure our Chinese companies do well overseas. So I don't don't think that's particularly surprising, right? Were, so, were, these, were these banks created specifically for this purpose or they were already there and they were they just created divisions within them in, you know, like a unit that is just for Africa? So China Development Bank. Um, so first of all, both of these banks existed long before the surge of loans to Africa. Mm. They existed long before. China Development Bank originally was meant to lend for development projects in China, right? cheap loans for development in China. China Export Import Bank's purpose on the hand is more outward oriented. It is, for, for example, to help Chinese companies win contracts abroad. This could be construction contracts. This could be supply contracts of goods and services, right? But it is also, they can also do it the other way around where the China Export Import Bank can lend money to a Chinese company who then use that money to do investments abroad. Yeah, so that yeah. has happened, for example, um, with companies, for example, they want to invest in an oil rig in Libya. It's expensive. They don't have the money for it. So they borrow China Export Import Bank money. In that case, that's a Chinese loans to a Chinese company. All right. So these two banks, they are they are Chinese banks. They have dual mandates. Let's put it this way. Mm. What do you mean by dual mandate? Most banks are commercial. If they are a commercial bank, their primary consideration is to make money. Profit. Yeah. Yes, profit. 
for a policy bank, which the U.S. has an export-import bank, France has something similar. These policy banks, uh, they not they need to not lose too much money, right? They not, they need to be able to support themselves, but they also need to advance the policy interest of their government, mm. right? So this is this is a this is a government institution. It's a government bank. And where does Jayong stand on this issue of debt trap diplomacy? The argument that China is lending so much money to poor countries, even as they know that these countries are unable to pay to repay these loans. We researchers in like Africa-China issues, we disagree on a lot of different things. Like mm. sometimes we get into arguments. The only thing we definitely don't disagree on this one, which is that the debt trap diplomacy is not a thing. All right. So this is a fantasy that somehow China is giving these loans just to appropriate strategic assets like ports or something like that. There is simply no evidence that this ever happened, right? There's no, not a single asset that has been appropriated through this method. Now, having a collateral on your loan agreement is very common practice in international lending. When you're about to give $1 billion, $2 billion, $3 billion in loans, you have a collateral. A commercial bank would do this, right? In practice, though, you almost never reach the state where the asset has to be appropriate. Renegotiation happens before that, restructuring what takes place long before you get to that point. All right. As far as the creditors are concerned, their interest is ultimately to receive the cash back, right? Or whatever in-kind payment that was agreed upon at the signing. So what I mean by in-kind payment is like if you're a country like Angola, which 99% of your income comes from oil, the Angola might just say, well, I borrow your loan instead of, and instead of giving cash back, I'll just give you all that easier. Okay. So now these are common practices, debt trap diplomacy. I think it takes, it, by wasting one's energy on talking about something that doesn't exist, we're shifting attention away for more important and really more obvious things like uh, for example, finding more sustainable ways for African states to finance their infrastructure, or how do we encourage Chinese financing from things like coal power plants into renewable energy? Mm-hmm. So, but, but before before you move to that, I wanted to to for you to to debunk this a little further because again, we've read, for example, there was this rumor that started a couple months ago that. Uganda was about to lose its international airport because it cannot it wasn't able to refinance its loan, the inter international airports in Kampala. Uh that the is this called the SGR, the railway or the port in Kenya and mm-hmm. the railway that they're not able to make money and they're not able to finance their loans and not to pay back their loans, and that China was about to come and take over. And there was another story that I had a couple of years ago about, I think it was a bridge somewhere in some island nation, uh, whether it was in Sri Lanka, whether it was, I don't remember. The port, the Sri Lanka it, and Hambantota port. I think that was it. Yeah. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vunganyi. We are chatting with Jayong Huang, a Global China Pre-Doctoral Research Fellow at Boston University. She leads research in the Chinese Loans to Africa database. We are discussing the China-Africa relationship and this idea that China is saddling African countries with so much debt that they will likely default on them. In fact, in October last year, 2022, 
The Kenyan government went on record to deny reports in the media that Chinese banks had fined the country $11 million for failing to pay back loans used to finance a major railway known as the Standard Gorge Railway. There were also reports that Kenya was on the verge of losing its port to China. Is there truth to this? There is actually a study by uh, Dr. Bradigam, who used to work on, who, you know, we're closely associated with. She did a deep dive on the Kenyan case after the, after the huge discussion about, oh, whether Kenya is going to lose its port. And it was, as I said, yes, in the agreement, technically, they put it up as a collateral. Renegotiation started long before that, before it would ever come to appropriating the port. Now, it is important to think about why China would want this port. If you think about the U.S., does the U.S. own any ports abroad? It's not because they can't, right? I would be more interested to see if China really wanted the port. Why would they go through all the hassle of doing a loan, finding contractors just to get the port? If you want the port, you just offer 51% cash payment of the stakes at the port. Mm. Then why, why twist yourself into a pretzel? What so if you, Kenya ended up paying their loan? Then you don't get the port. That's, if you want the port, you go for the port, mm. right? And a lot of these projects, and same thing with airport. Well, like, what is China, like, does China make money by getting an airport in Entebbe? Like, you will only get money from that if you assume that they can manage it and then, you know, somehow make a profit. Right. I guess the assumption is that they can they can leverage these uh, facilities to control, to influence local politics vis-a-vis mm-hmm. Western uh, uh, interests. Okay, <laughs> I can see how that would be in the public imagination. Um, so, oh, maybe you can twist their the African countries aren't to make them do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. But right. I think and, and, and actually one of the questions I was going to ask you, and I, I really want you to talk about this, is, is how, how China leverages its uh, Africa investment or Africa engagement when it comes to the UN, for example. Okay, so I'm assuming you meant um, uh, Africa voting with China on certain UN issues, right? Right. So, yeah. There has been studies by other researchers, not our organization, showing that for those who receive more Chinese financing in all forms, uh, tend to vote with China on some issues. But I think it's misleading to say that African leaders are forced into voting with China only because they need Chinese money. It really depends on the issue and how important the African leaders themselves believe the issue is relevant to them or not. If the issue at hand they're voting on is perceived as of little consequence to their own state, then it is low cost for them to vote along with China. I'm just like, it's not my business, right? Now, if it is an issue that African leaders think is very relevant to them, then they will break rank, right? If you look at the recent um, UN voting in May on Ukraine, it's not the same as if they were voting on issues such as the Uyghurs, Right. And the, 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 the human also, report, the human rights report, the big human rights report that came out recently. In that one, yes, I think in that one, I think most African countries voted. Actually, I don't know that. I think the result was, I know the Ukraine vote result was definitely not as pro-China as, as you expected they would be, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the African leaders are very aware of where the wind is blowing in terms of international sentiment on certain issues. So in the end, the African leaders vote according to whatever as perceived to be their own state's interest. If it doesn't cost much, 
what we're trying to, what's the problem? If they think that, well, this issue is important, then, you know, goodbye, we're voting on our own. Mm. And you know what, leverage is a funny thing. It goes both ways. Like, instead of thinking only China has leverage over Africa, you'd be surprised that, well, how, why do we not consider how come, why, for example, Africa can use China as a leverage against their traditional Western finances, right? right? right. Especially but, in the early days when China was pumping money in. You know. When there was easy money at the time. But, but is there a downside mm-hmm. to Africa accessing all these you know, this money from China? Uh, so, so this is the point where we can like, take into current trends of Chinese loans, right? Chinese loans to Africa peak in 2016, and it has been trending down for five years in a row, and we don't see it coming back up anytime soon. Why is that? Well, there are internal reasons in China that we can talk about later. But also it reached a point where both the lenders, both the Chinese lenders and the African borrowers don't have much appetite for the loans anymore. Well, for the African states, it's like, well, we have too much debt right now. We don't actually- We can't take it anymore. We can't take anymore, right? Yeah, so they see the downsides. And even if China offers more loan financing, I mean, not a whole lot of African states would take it up. And there are also other considerations, speaking of leverage, like even, for example, in Ghana, um, this was maybe 10 years ago when Ghana wanted to borrow 3 billion worth of Chinese loans. And IMF said, I thought you were part of this uh, this uh, debt relief initiative. I thought we had an agreement. You weren't going to borrow more than 800 million. What's with this, right? And basically, IMS said, if you're going to do this, then you're off our program. And in the future, you want debt relief or cheap loans from us? No dice. And the Ghana said, okay, okay, fine. Let's only borrow 1.5 billion then. So everyone has a leverage on everyone else. So I think it's a, we, we, we don't want to cast Africa as someone who doesn't have their own. There's no agency. Yeah, they, 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 they choose and they make their own decisions. Again, and, and that's also debatable in terms of one, if, for example, a country that is not considered democratic or, you know, with a strong man that has in, been in power for over 40 years and he's, ex, he's able to get uh, these cheap loans and you're not sure whether he's actually using the money uh, to develop the country or he's using it for his own personal pet project. So, you know, this white, ele- you know, borrowing money to build these white elephant projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, there is reason to believe that maybe that's not necessarily good for the country. So there are definitely discussions of rogue aid back in the days about whether China is propping up dictators abroad or whether they're trying to encourage um, autocracy abroad or something like that. And there are actually studies by other researchers, not our organization, showing that if you look at where Chinese money is flowing to, they don't systematically flow to more authoritarian states. That's just, you know, they did in regression. I didn't look at the details of that regression. And frankly, I'm not surprised by their results. Right now, I'm, for example, for my own research, not at BU, I'm looking at the cases in Cameroon and Zambia. Zambia, by African standard, is fairly democratic. It's not the most dem- democratic, but it's, it has, you know, competitive elections. Right. They are one of the top borrowers of Chinese loans. Mm. Right. And then you have Cameroon, which we have Paul Bia for what, 20 years? 40, 40 years. 40 years, right? They are also a top borrower of Chinese loans. Right. But then you also have like small borrowers of Chinese loans 
who are some are some are democratic and some are more authoritarian like Rwanda is very authoritarian they don't borrow a whole lot of Chinese loans and then you have Botswana which is democratic they also don't borrow a whole lot of Chinese loans Mm. so I think it comes more down to who has more need for Chinese loans right I wanted to ask you, so Xi Jinping uh, has been elected or chosen to to lead the country for the next foreseeable future. What does this mean for the money? You said, you know, it has been trending downwards. The loans to Africa have been trending downwards. Uh, But there's something to the fact that this, you know, the, the leader who has been around in, you know, when when this money was flowing in is still going to be around. For one, how do you see that? How do you think that is perceived by the African leaders? especially in these more autocratic states. So one approach to think um, think of this issue is in terms of how African leaders would expect Chinese financing to Africa to change, given the political configuration in China. So Xi Jinping's economic vision is not the same as his predecessors who ushered in the going out policy in the 1990s, right? There is a notable inward turn to China's economic policies under Xi. And and this um, this reorientation started at least as early as 2018 during the U.S.-China tariff war, but probably had roots earlier since Xi Jinping uh, came to office, right? And during the U.S. the 2018 uh, U.S.-China tariff war, there were calls to refocus on developing China's own domestic demands. You know, focus on us. It's kind of like the America, America first. Yeah, America first. You, yeah. It's kind of like China first in economic policy. So the pandemic definitely accelerated this inward turn with major interruptions in international trade, investment, travel, right? And this crystallized into this new strategy announced in May 2020 called the Domestic International Dual Circulation. So let me say that one. Domestic International Dual Circulation. So this... This calls for giving domestic circulation, so basically domestic demand uh, and domestic supply, the center stage of economic development, while keeping enough openness on the international market to maintain the supply chain. But this is focus on China, right? So we believe, you know, our research group at B, we believe that this inward turn partially contributed to the decline in Chinese loans to Africa since 2016. And, you know, it's been declining for five years in a row and Without structural changes to any of these factors, we don't expect it to come back up. Mm. So given the political circumstances of China, we expect this in return to continue. And this is not a new development, though, right? As we said, the downward trend has been going on for five years. And I think African leaders are likely already aware of this term, like Chinese loans for infrastructure is just not as easy to access as they were. They were. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that the infrastructure gap goes away, right? Unfortunately, there might be other ways to finance and other than loan financing. So in the past few years, we see, we're seeing a lot more non-loan financing, novel financing instruments, such as public-private partnerships, build-own-operate-transfer projects, so BOOT projects, or EPC financing models. So what are these things, briefly, right? So... Public-private partnership is, for example, Chinese companies and an African state-owned company will go into a joint venture to develop a mine, to build a power plant, or things like that. Or they do a BOOT, which is a built-operate-owned transfer. So 
one example is um, the there's a road, a toll road in Sierra Leone called Masiaka, um, where the Sierra Leone government asked the Chinese company to build the road. Chinese company brought their own money, built the road, but it's a toll road. And the Chinese company, the agreement is that we can collect tolls collect, for the next yeah. 20 years. Uh, there are problems with that, with that particular project in the sense that because there were public pushback on the tolls, people would say it's too expensive, that they mm. have to lower the toll cost. But that means they also have to extend the year yeah. for the Chinese companies, right? Mm. So not everything's peachy, right? And then you have the EPC plus financing, which we believe this is a very new instrument that we're seeing, which is when the contractors themselves have to raise money on the market. They have to attract their own financing from um, from a syndicated group of financiers, and then they bring the money in to invest in the project. Mm. So like Chinese seeing, venture capital, they take it to Africa. Exactly, exactly. Mm. And then um, we may also see African states turn to borrowing or seeking guarantees from regional institutions, like your African development banks, the African Export Import Bank. And these institutions have more focused mission and understanding of African countries' financial needs, particularly in infrastructure. So they may be a better fit. Yeah, John Huang is a Global China Predoctoral Research Fellow at the Boston University Global Development Policy Research, where she leads research for the Chinese Loans to Africa database for the 2021-2023 research cycles. And with that, we come to the end of our show today. Many thanks to all of you for tuning in, whether you're listening in on radio or online via our podcasts. Remember to connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, on Instagram. Until next time, I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Let's connect right here again next week. Goodbye, everyone.